everyone, and welcome to another episode of Fully Automated and Occupy IR Theory podcast. Well, this week's episode is the second in our Brexit series, and we are joined by Luke Ashworth, Professor of International Relations at Memorial University of Newfoundland and author of the influential text, a History of International Thought, which came out from Routledge in 2014. In our last episode, we heard Lee Jones offer what was perhaps not exactly a Lexit or left exit position on Brexit, but nevertheless, I think fair to say a progressive position, uh, but one very much in favor of a full disengagement from Europe, or as they put it on their website, a full Brexit. Now, at the core of Lee's argument was, I think, uh, the view that the EU is essentially an anti-democratic entity and an unreformable project. The only way to address the problem, he claimed, uh, was to restore British sovereignty. And in this sense, Lee was critical uh, not only of the deal uh, Theresa May proposed last December, but also the position of the British Labour Party with its now infamous six tests. That is essentially uh, the idea that whatever deal the United Kingdom should pursue, it should result in, and I quote, the exact same benefits as those currently enjoyed by the UK as a member of the single market, uh, but with special additional provisions, including uh, the fair management of migration. Now, this is, of course, a complex and ongoing story. When we interviewed Lee Jones just before December 12th, Theresa May uh, was only about to present her draft withdrawal argument to the House of Commons. And since then, as we know, that vote ended up being postponed. It took place finally on January 15th to what would famously become the greatest parliamentary defeat of any prime minister in British history. Under normal circumstances, such defeat would, of course, have resulted in a vote of no confidence. Yet because of the fixed-term Parliament Act, Theresa May's government has lived on. And her strategy now, uh, following the so-called Brady Amendment passed on January 29th, is to uh, return to Brussels and uh, to try to negotiate for alternative arrangements. Now, importantly, the clock is ticking here. Uh, Another January 29th effort uh, to introduce an amendment introduced uh, by Labour MP Yvette Cooper uh, would have authorised a delay in Brexit, and that was rejected by 23 votes, a slim enough margin, uh, which could feasibly change as the big day, March 29th, draws near. Uh, Well, time running out. It seems the key issue remains, uh, the so-called backstop, the rock-solid guarantee agreed between all parties that whatever deal may happen, uh, there will be no hard border between the European Union and Northern Ireland. Now, uh, for listeners who are not aware, a significant side effect of the backstop is that it locks Britain into an indefinite customs union uh, with the European Union and thus, in a sense, defeats the very purpose of Brexit, some might say. So, uh, seeing as May can't get her deal through, so long as the backstop remains, or at least she can't get it through relying on the Eurosceptic backbenchers of her own party and her DUP coalition partners, there's a real issue on the horizon. 
uh, which means that perhaps Britain may end up leaving the European Union without any deal at all. Now, of course, there's developments going on. Uh, I recorded this interview uh, with Luke Ashworth last Friday. Today is uh, February 20th. And uh, there have been a series of resignations from both the Conservative and Tory parties. But the, I think, ongoing development is that the Corbyn-led Labour Party has agreed uh, to moderate its opinion uh, as to whether whatever deal should happen uh, must have the exact same benefits as single market membership. So, you know, in fairness, I think that was a very high bar provision. And it is probably important to, to note that um, so, so long as it was in place, it had a certain strategic function. On the one hand, it allowed the Labour Party leadership a platform uh, from which it could criticise the terms of any deal that Theresa May might have been likely to come up with. And on the other hand, um, it allowed uh, the Labour Party to appear to be honouring the results of the referendum and thereby placate uh, the roughly one third of its supporters who voted to leave the European Union. But Corbyn's position uh, means that Labour now openly supports something like a full customs union. And this is significant because it gives Theresa May uh, a pathway potentially towards leaving the European Union. Um, and it is a deal possibly that would appeal to the European Union itself, who have expressed a willingness to negotiate on any deal that respects the backstop. Um, which might look like it would get through Parliament. Now, of course, whether it would get through Parliament is a whole other question. Um, the parliamentary mathematics are fading, arguably, uh, for a second referendum or a crash-out deal. So it could be that Labour are trying to make a last-ditch effort to cobble together an alternative uh, to May's deal. In other words, a deal based on what some people call the Norway Plus model, which is something like a bespoke uh, customs union model with latitude on specific topics like state aid rules and perhaps also freedom of movement. So the question is, can something like that happen? Uh, there's a lot of smart journalists writing for the Financial Times who are saying no. And uh, given that such a deal uh, would likely split the Conservative Party in two, the prospect of a May-Corbyn compromise, they say, is designed uh, potentially just to do one thing only, and that's to try to force a consensus among the Tory backbenchers, thereby, of course, helping May's deal get through Parliament. In that light, Corbyn's real strategy, in other words, would be nothing more than to try to let the Tories own Brexit and uh, try to move the political agenda along onto other things. Uh, notably, the theory goes, uh, Corbyn may even allow some of his own party to vote for Theresa May's, Theresa May's deal and thereby stave off uh, this spectre of a crash out. Brexit. Um, but if the compromise is intended to be the stick that Tory backbenchers uh, are whipped into line with, then uh, then May doesn't really seem to have much by way of a, an especially enticing carrot. Um, in the Sunday Telegraph of February 3rd, Mrs. May wrote that she had spoken with uh, Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn and that they had both agreed that the backstop as set out in the withdrawal agreement had to change namely that it would now have to be of a limited duration. And my own sense is that the European Union might be open to this insofar as it kicks the can down the road. But Tory backbenchers, on the other hand, don't seem to be impressed, seeing it as a mere rearranging of the deck chairs. What they want is something much more than tinkering 
with the expiry dates for a backstop. They want a full renegotiation. So, so we'll have to see what happens. Uh, Theresa May's uh, self-imposed February 13th deadline for reporting back to Parliament has come and gone. Uh, we are now very, very close to uh, the big day. And uh, if something cannot be produced in the next few weeks, then it seems a crash out Brexit is extremely likely. Uh, it will take place, all other things remaining equal, on March 29th. And here, with the unfortunate task of talking to us about this, is Luke Ashworth. So Luke Ashworth, my, my first ever professor of international relations, what a pleasure to have you on the show. Um, thanks for joining us. First of all, let me just open up and say like, like how are you and, and how is uh, your migraine, your Brexit migraine? Because I, I, I admit as we draw closer to this thing, I have no idea anymore what's going on. Oh, I'm, I'm with you on that one. I mean, it's sort of exasperated and tired. Uh, the, the only thing... I think that good about it is that there's a teachable moment here. There is. It's Marx's notion of how uh, a crisis reveals the true workings of the world is that uh, Brexit's done the same. If you want to talk about how the World Trade Organization works, uh, how the EU works, uh, uh, how international negotiations work and so forth, there's a lesson in Brexit. So it's been good for teaching. You know, I love your analysis. That's yeah, <laughs> it's, it's your optimism, brother. Too, right? like, like we are, because uh, you're a little bit distant from it. I think it would be rather different if you were actually on the ground. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, admittedly, here in uh, Texas, uh, things do feel a bit remote, although I am, uh, I'll tell you, I'm uh, somewhat unhealthily addicted to listening to Irish podcasts and Irish news analysis. And so I, uh, it is a very Irish perspective that I'm getting on these things. But even then, like, it, it does sort of surprise me how now, even in the past couple of weeks, there does seem to be a tenor of panic um, kind of creeping in. And, and uh, we'll, we can maybe talk more about that later on. But um, just to sort of maybe for, because obviously we have a quite a general audience here as well as um, uh, uh, some, uh, you know, scholars who are in IR theory and IPE. So addressing both of these audience, I suppose, just to get the ball rolling, um, what would be the Luke Ashworth ABCs of Brexit? Uh, I mean, wh what is it? Why is it happening? And most importantly, just for today, wh what's your take, your broad take on it? Mm. I'll start with the yeah. smallest question. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, the first thing I suppose, I mean, just, just to go big picture here is the complexity of it. Yeah. Uh, and I think it has come out with uh, your discussion, the last podcast. With That's Lee right. Well, with Lee Jones. The complexity of it. And the problem is, is that um, to be an expert on Brexit, you have to be an expert on so many fields mm -hmm. because it touches on so many areas. And we can't. We just haven't got the time. You can't be an expert on the WTO on the one hand and on uh, far-right populism and, uh, on the other. Uh, so uh, all of us really are working with a major disadvantage in the sense that we, we can be a master in one area, but, but, no, but not in the others. Mm -hmm. that we don't know the other areas. And uh, right. in that sense, you know, it, you can really only understand Brexit by conversations like this, where people mm -hmm. come in, someone says something that they understand and they know about, but then they also say something that goes into someone else's area and, and 
they commit a jejeune mistake and have to be corrected. So it requires a, a kind of community discussion. Yeah, I think so too. Um, it's it's granted that there's all this complexity, though there are obviously. Um, you know, difficulties at the abstract theoretical level caused by that. But then you have this sort of difficulty of dealing with the horse trading aspect, which is like just, you know, how yeah. the day is getting nearer and um, it's not entirely clear even to ordinary people day to day, like, you know, what, what, um, you know, the backstop is, you know, there's these very arcane pieces of terminology and. Absolutely. Yes. You have to be an expert on parliamentary procedure on the Good Friday Agreement. On, absolutely. Uh, so at that other level as well. And, so do you uh, follow, are you, what, where, what's your take on, um, you know, a month away from Brexit? Like what, what do you think about the parliamentary aspect of it right now? Well, so two elements of it really. I, one is that uh, we've kind of seen a return to a quite robust parliamentary government I, I, uh -huh. from the outside. And if you're not a parliamentarian, it can look very, uh, it, it, it can look very messy. Mm -hmm. uh, what are these people doing? But on the other hand, uh, the uh, the kind of the reassertion of sort of parliamentary democracy, mm -hmm. and we've seen a similar thing, I think, with the issues over Trump, with particularly after the midterm elections in the U.S., a kind of a reassertion of the role of the legislature. And yeah. when I compare that to say the Canadian legislature, where there aren't any crises, uh, and you look at kind of what's going on in the Canadian legislature, which is very similar to the British one, and uh, it's much more kind of sonambulant. So on the one hand, there's a kind of a positive thing here of a uh, of, a, of a very vibrant political process. Uh, on the other, I, it's it's very difficult to see where this is going to lead because. The crisis is kind of path dependent. It depends what happens now depends on what happens before. So there's a dependency on on how each thing occurs uh, will lead us to a particular uh, uh, kind of outcome. Mm. And really, all bets are off on what that outcome will be. You know, we we know roughly it's likely to be between three and no deal withdrawal agreements or no Brexit, although the withdrawal agreement is looking pretty dicey at this stage. Uh, so it might most likely land in one of those three slots as, it, as the ball goes down. Yeah. But equally well, there's always the possibility uh, of some kind of fudge that leads to some kind of off, off the peg uh, solution as well, yeah. or just kicking the can down the road. Yeah, well, I think we should probably address all of those in a little more detail if we can yes. uh, in a little while. But just to sort of maybe stay at that parliamentary logistics level, um, uh, you know, reading some of the editorial pages right now, uh, there's a strong sense that there's like a tendency towards what you might call Kremlin Kremlinology. Um, yes. You know, figuring out who's really talking to who behind the scenes. Yvette Cooper failed to delay. So you have the Brady Amendment, uh, you know, passing, which ostensibly sends Theresa May back to find uh, a better deal. But then coming back to Parliament with whatever 
and I'm afraid I don't necessarily grasp the nuances of what exactly she presented on 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 Valentine's Day night, but. Uh, you know, uh, obviously that getting rejected by the by, by the Tory backbenchers um, who ostensibly felt that it was taking the option of a no deal off the table. But Parliament had passed an amendment just late January saying that it precisely wanted to take a no deal off the table. So, um, you know, how is this getting channeled right now? Like, are you seeing um, forces, pressures at work that are channeling this thing? As you said, there's a deep sort of teleology to this. So, like... Yes. If it's path dependent, what is the path? What is the path? Well, this, this is part of the problem. And it changes so regularly. Uh, my uh, colleague who's in the office next to me, who's an IPE specialist, is uh, continually sort of wide eyed at, uh, mm. at every single development. And it seems like it changes uh, on a daily basis sometimes. How, uh, let, me, let me ask you a focus yeah. question here. Like, how, how, in your view, just maybe even at the gut level or, or drawing on your uh, wealth of background as a scholar, because I think sometimes those two things bleed into the same basket. But, the, the, you know, what um, is Theresa May super committed to keeping the Tory party together? That does seem to be one of the things she's doing. The very fact that she's tried to go for a withdrawal agreement, some kind of fudge that brings together the Tory party rather than going cross-party. Uh-huh. Her relationship with, uh, with, with Labour, for example, yeah. seems to suggest that Tory party unity is more important to her. And it is, you're right, it's criminology in a way. Mm. But also this maybe also becomes a bit more of a longer thread because in some respects the calling of the referendum to begin with was an attempt to end the Tory party civil war in Europe, which of course Cameron is having problems with. He, he brings up the referendum to try and solve that issue, to stop people banging on about Europe. Uh, but this also goes back to uh, the fall of Major, of John Major's government, which led to them to the long period of, uh, of Blair government uh, under New Labour, is that the fall of um, the last prime minister before, conservative prime minister before Cameron, uh, was uh, partially due to splits over Europe. So right. this is a disease of the Conservative Party. A disease of the Conservative Party. <laughs> okay. Yeah, which is now being transferred to the body politic. <laughs> right, right. Um, there, there have been some um, suggestions that, um, that, that, that Corbyn... Uh, uh, the leader of the Labour Party may be reaching out, may may be making uh, some gestures towards Theresa May in in making certain concessions, for example, on whether the six tests would have to produce um, a a a, a, um, a deal that would have, and I quote, the exact same benefits as uh, membership of the EU uh, in terms of the membership of the single market. But what um, conversely. Uh, there was suggestion that May was trying to use this potential rapprochement uh, as a way of t terrifying um, the, the Tory backbenchers into the deal. But if, if that is true, and, in tor and say, it, as we get closer to the deadline, Theresa May does try to reach out across the aisle, to borrow that American way of putting it. Mm. Um, it, it what are the, what would be the implications now of Theresa May's 
deal passing. Um, you know, so if we assume the EU approves it, which is of course no guarantee, um, but um, it would seem that th that the current framing of May's deal is that it would have an expiry date on the backstop. Um, and in that sense, then uh, you could imagine a kind of um, a fudge emerging over the Irish border. Um, that could be indefinitely extended and pretended. Um, I asked Lee this broad question, and I'm going to put it to you now as well. How would, how could the, the UK implement that deal? I mean, because, among other things, it requires something like a functional border, either between Northern Ireland or Ireland or in the Irish Sea. And I'm just, I've always been curious how anyone actually would imagine that working. Mm, you're thinking particularly the Irish border problem. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, which is something that uh, the two of us have some experience of too. Right, growing up um, there, I mean, for sure. I remember, I remember yeah. what that looked like. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, but that's not what they imagine, because yeah. they talk about these um, high-tech solutions that uh, you know would, yes. would allow a kind of a Switzerland deal. Uh, obviously, Switzerland's a member of Schengen, which changes things a little bit. The uh, United Kingdom yes. wouldn't necessarily be yeah. so. Yeah, and the other one, of course, is the Swedish-Norway border. But again, Norway is part of Schengen. Mm. But even then, I mean, this is the problem, is those borders do actually have checks. Mm -hmm. And there are, you know, lorry parks. They do it very quickly, yes. but it's still there. And I think there's a number of problems with the Irish border that, that make it different. Um, the first one is uh, that... Um, uh, you'd have to close a hell of a lot of roads. I mean, they opened up a lot of roads after the Good Friday agreements. Mm -hmm. So uh, the border runs, it's a very odd border. Well, all borders are odd, but this one is odder than most. And so mm. you pass in and out of Northern Ireland. There was even a, a young lady on the news interviewed there during the week on RTE uh, talking about how her bedroom is in Northern Ireland, but she eats her breakfast in the Republic because her house literally straddles <laughs> the border. Yes, so, I, you know, I, 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 yes. it's important, I think, for American listeners or listeners elsewhere in the world to, you know, who maybe may not be familiar with this, just to sort of understand that right now, even though there are two countries, two, two jurisdictions there, um, the border does not exist. You, you, all you see when you drive right. from Dublin to Belfast is the, the street signs change their, That's it. their style. And I, you know, it, it, it's, it's very hard to actually see. Exactly. You very easily cross it. So, I mean, that's one thing is you'd have to close a lot of roads mm -hmm. and concentrate the roads as, as you do with, with most borders, you're going to have to, uh, build, build back the infrastructure uh, that was there before for checking for checking lorries and so forth. Uh, the other thing is, yeah. and this is often forgotten, is that one of the effects of the Good Friday Agreement uh, and uh, the creating a sort of invisible border was it it massively increased trade, commuting over the border. Uh, generally, uh, it's now at a much greater level than it was previously. So you can't go back 
to a kind of earlier, to a sort of a, a 1980s, <coughs> early 90s situation. Because economic so, interdependency has increased, has uh, increased. the, the yes. uh, you Absolutely. having Republican, Republican, excuse me, Republican yes. milk, uh, <laughs> milk from the Republic of Ireland uh, processed in the North, bottled and then re-exported back to Ireland for market. Yeah. yeah and, and people working on either side of the border. Yeah. So this is all going on. And then on top of that, of course, is the issue that uh, this is the whole clever thing about the Good Friday Agreement mm. is that both both communities could claim victory. Yes. Uh, but the nationalists, they could say, well, there's there's no difference between us and 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 Ireland. We can cross over any time we like. And then for the uh, uh, for the unionists, it's uh, you know we're still in the UK. So what was clever about the agreement, and of course it's built in to an assumption that the European European Union exists and everything exists under kind of European arrangements, is that both both could claim they were living in the country they wanted to while living side by side with someone from another community. Yeah. And whether you like it or not, any kind of border infrastructure is going to throw a, a monkey wrench in that. And yeah. fact, there are, of course, members of the DUP yes. who are happy with that. So there is a group that's trying to put a monkey wrench into the, into the Good Friday Agreement. So it's kind of playing into their hands as well. One of the good points, uh, as you know, we've mentioned it already, uh, had Lee Jones on uh, there yes. just before Christmas. Um, and this was around about the time that the, um, the when May his presentation of the deal got postponed to, to January. Um, and one of the points that I think he made that I thought was really important is to, to, to maybe put a pause on this, uh, sort of, um, kind of almost scare, scaremongering idea that, uh, just because the border would return ipso facto, you would find yourself back in the seventies again, in the middle of the civil rights struggle. Um, I, I think Lee is right. And I think you'd probably agree that there has been a tremendous amount of sociological change that has happened North and South of the border. Since then, we are living in a much more cosmopolitan world. Uh, you know, it, that's the period of time that I, I was born and grew up in. And I can tell you, even since I was a kid in Ireland, I've seen a lot of change in that country. So it's, it's, it is, I think I agree with Lee, uh, that, that it is hard to imagine the bad old days just coming back all of a sudden. And you've seen, you know, Leo Varadkar, the Irish Prime Minister, with respect, pulling a couple of stunts in the media, um, showing up at various EU um, uh, meetings with, you know, front page of the Irish Times talking about, you know, a headline, scary headline returning, you know, uh, forecasting, predicting some kind of return to the past. Uh, you've seen a number of pieces, uh, uh, numerous now pieces by Fintan O'Toole, um, you know, hand wringing over this possibility as well. Where do you sort of come in on all of that? I mean, do you, do you, do you, do you have a sense that there, you know, cause obviously we can't predict the future, but no, do, no, do you no. think the bad old days are truly in the past in that sense? Yeah, I would agree. I would agree with Lee. Mm. That, and I think it extends just beyond the Irish border to also there have been people on both sides, leave and remain yeah. who threatening the, the, the specter of civil war or right. of sharp 
turns to the far right, and I think Lee would uh, also holds this position too, that, uh, that that that's not really going to happen. Mm-hmm. You know, bad things can happen, but they don't necessarily have to go all the way back to the bad old days. They right. play play like the original, yeah. and so in this sense, I would agree. Uh, the uh, the peace process, uh, in many respects, there's a limit to how far it will get rolled back. So we, I think, we have to be careful about about the kind of the uh, the uh, the claims about Armageddon. Uh, but that said, it's still going to roll things back. Certainly, I mean, it's going to uh, reduce a lot of the trust that existed between Dublin and London. It's going to make it more difficult to uh, get Stormont back and up and running. Mm. It is going to cause tensions between the two communities. And it's, it is going to cause economic hardship as well, mm. on both sides of the border. So there will be an effect. But yes, absolutely, we shouldn't overplay it. We're not going to be returning to uh, the, uh, the scenes we saw in the, in, in the late 60s and early 70s. Thanks, Luke. So, so I want to invite you now as, uh, to sort of, I want to speak to you as a scholar and I yes. want to, I want to draw on, I mean, it's partly the reason you're on the show, right? Because you, yes. you have a, you have a particular type of expertise, a particular type of background as a scholar. Um, a lot of people in our community are going to know you, um, for having a certain type of argument. Um, I wanted to sort of talk to that Luke Ashworth now for a minute and, sure. and, um, just ask you, um, where and, and, and well, what the historical significance of Brexit is, um, if, if, if I can put it to you that way. Yeah. The debate, yeah. the contention. Yeah. Well, my, my deep concern here is that a lot of the, particularly on the left, uh, a lot of the arguments in favor of Brexit have assumed that we can go back uh, to a, a sovereign nation state system. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm very skeptical of this. And, and much of this is kind of based on, as you say, a, a, a historical approach, particularly sort of a, a long durée uh, historical approach, um, where uh, in many respects there's been two major great accelerations uh, in about the last 150 years. And in fact, I've have on one occasion called the last sort of century and a half the uh, the long twentieth century. Right, the long twentieth century. Uh, so there has been a kind of a long twentieth century, and there's been a kind of uh, they're like nesting dolls. There's been, and you can trace it in yeah. uh, international thought, uh, which is where I, I have come from. This in terms of the study of international thought, and the sort of the first great acceleration. Uh, is uh, is particularly the first and second industrial revolutions, uh, and uh, it's within that that uh, we saw uh, the development of uh, of the nation state as we know it. Uh, we saw the uh, the development of interdependence alongside the development of the nation state and of international organisations, which in many respects saved the nation state by allowing it to uh, continue to function while right. doing functions at an international level that the state was no, no longer able to cope with. But there's been, and I think this is the important thing, a second great acceleration, a second great acceleration which you find uh, particularly discussed in uh, system science, and that's the and it's been even more dramatic since the 1950s. And it's, um, 
it's ripped up a lot of the certainties uh, that uh, we even took for granted within the kind of the first first great acceleration. And uh, the two aspects there that I think are very relevant to the Brexit uh, debate are, first of all, uh, hyper-globalization. So we've got uh, this kind of uh, um, turbocharged globalization that's gone on. Uh, or I should really say globalizations, because it's, it's, it's different things at different levels, and much right. of it is of human action, but not of human design. And the other one is, is the end of nature. The end of uh, nature. The, the, uh, our relationship with, with ecology and uh, the, how humans now have become a force of nature. Uh, and uh, this also has kind of profound implications about how we see international relations, but it also kind of impinges on on the Brexit debate uh, because uh, uh, there is also a kind of a question that we need to ask about uh, political institutions and structures to deal with this new role we have as a kind of a, as as a as a force of nature with a where we're now uh, uh, having to be stewards um, of, uh, of, of the ecology, mm-hmm. which we never had to deal with before. Right. No, so no. that impinges on, on how we think about uh, um, political institutions. Okay. So then Brexit comes along in, in all of this yes. and, and um, sort of is, 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 a, is a phenomenon, obviously expression of our political dynamics that are shaped by these two accelerations, the, the historical legacies of them? It is. Par- partially, of course, it's a, it's a response to it mm-hmm. uh, to, a, to a certain extent. And also, of course, the European Union in that sense can be seen as, as, as part of this. And of course, linked into this as well is one of the, th- one of the things that's kind of happened um, with uh, the, the second great acceleration is, is that it's, first of all, it's, uh, it's kind of thrown up neoliberalism, but at the same time now it's, it's throwing it back down again. So we see the sort of things rising and then falling, and that has implications in terms of the way that we look at, uh, uh, at the European Union. But what it does mean actually is that, that to a large degree there are things we cannot go back to. Uh, because because the world has changed so dramatically, and as just a kind of a, a example of this, because a lot of uh, mm-hmm. chatter you get on particularly Twitter is, well, we did this before in the past. We did this before we joined the EU. Why can't we do this now? Why when we joined the EC? Why can't we just go back to what we did? Uh, and in some respects, the Irish border mirrors this because right. uh, you know, the increase of change means so we can't go back to the 1980s and 1990s, and. Uh, one of the ones that, that strikes me particularly is the is the talk about uh, uh, trade, and I know uh, that Lee mentioned this as well. And uh, a lot of the pro Brexit stance um, kind of coalesces around this idea of look, it's not a problem. We only do forty five percent, fifty percent of our trade with the EU. Uh, we'll just go back to trading under World Trade Organization rules. Okay, That's problem. Yes, Lee did um, mention that. Yeah. Um, yeah. But the world's moved on, uh, and uh, well, first of all, you know the argument is well, you know there's a uh, 160 countries or whatever that trade under WTO rules. No, there isn't. There isn't a single country in the world that solely trades under WTO rules. That's so a big point. Major changes that we've gone into, yeah. have gone through, has been the creation of lots of 
trade agreements, bilateral agreements. Um, there's now a kind of a myriad of these kind of uh, agreements that exist. Mm -hmm. But the other problem is, is that again, the complexity of trade rules, uh, and this is just in the area of trade rules, yeah. uh, is that um, the UK is a member of the WTO, but under EU terms. So that actually, it's in a weird gray area. It can't just jump into trading in WTO rules. There's <laughs> whole issues about um, if, it, if it left the EU without a trade deal, uh, that the UK would then uh, face probably trade disputes uh, under most favored nation um, uh, um, uh, terms. Uh, but also the issue that things like uh, the um, uh, uh, the uh, tariff uh, quotas um, that uh, would have to be sorted out, that the UK's uh, how the UK trades under WTO rules would have to be changed from one in the EU uh, to uh, to a new one. So there'd have to be a, a new set of negotiations. And during those negotiations, any member of the EU, of the EU, sorry, any during those negotiations, any member of the WTO could come in and say, no, we want to dispute this. So mm -hmm. this is just a small area of trade. But what we can see here is how complex uh, life has become. Uh, and that these sort of very simple formula, which would have been fine in the 60s and 70s, we would have talked about just returning to GATT rules or whatever, are, are now very, very much more complicated. So that's a really great point. And um, I'm glad you brought it up. I'm glad you've explained it. Um, because I think, you know, for me, uh, when I was interviewing Lee, and he's if he's listening to this right now, Lee, <laughs> you're welcome to come back on and talk again uh, about absolutely. this. And I hope and I hope you will. And I'd love uh, to have a chat with Lee about it. Maybe we'll get you both on uh, at some time uh, when, when, in a month when this goes down. Uh, yes, but... You know, um, because I, I do think it's really important to have a good faith debate uh, on this. And I think there are many valid positions. Um, one of the questions that I have, though, in the light of what you're saying, and this is, of course, maybe putting on our dorky, wonky IR hats a little too much for uh, for, for listeners at home who, who may not be, uh, you know, fully initiated into the arcane realm of our language. But um you know, if if we can sort of recall how Lee was arguing, and I think very appropriately, and, and not 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 with I, I I don't reproach him for this at all, but um, he was saying, you know, it's time to draw a line and to say, you know, um, Britain needs sovereignty. Yes. And, and needs it now. And, and, and I suppose, Luke, if, if I'm, if I'm on your side a little bit here in this conversation analytically, it's because I think like yourself, I'm recognizing that, um, sovereignty today in that sort of old sense is, is a highly complex proposition. Um, and for me as also then someone of the left, uh, you know, unapologetically so. Um, I, I've often felt uh, that the left at its finest moments is a left that is globalistic, uh, or, or at least cosmopolitan, right? It's it's not for nothing that Marx said in the manifesto, working men of the world unite, you have nothing to lose but your chains. And 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 we know we don't even need to get into the details, but we know there's a there's a legacy of um um, proletarian forces betraying those ideals uh, and 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 collapsing back into parochialism and and, and nationalism. Um, I'm not saying, and I would never dare say that uh, the forces of Brexit are 
by definition aligned with that. And I, I take uh, exception. I do take strong exception to when I see um, some people who I'm personally very friendly with and, 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 uh, you know, and, and I, I love their work. Um, but I, but I do see there's a kind of a tendency to fall into, um, kind of, uh, finger pointing sometimes, um, uh, when it comes to this issue, I, I don't think it's necessarily the case that the, 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 the argument for Brexit is a regressive one. Uh, that said, um, uh, you know, to go back to, uh, the, 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 the object before us, um, even as I, uh, sort of distance myself from the Brexit argument, I recognize that, um, to sort of somehow then argue that the EU ought to be embraced as the solution is, 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 is surely cannot be the answer either. Um, even, even if you're right in your analysis that, um, these, these various accelerations have taken place and, and sovereignty is incredibly complex today. I'm not sure that I can then turn around and say the EU is the solution to our problems. Uh, I mean, just to pick one example, the, the wonderful Irish author that I talk about endlessly on this show, uh, Peter Mayer, um, you know, I think in that last book of his before he passed away, you know, he calls out the EU and modern European parliamentary politics precisely for being unable to offer real tangible solutions to our political problems. So, you know, if we don't want, where does that leave us? Like, we don't want to be necessarily unproblematically saying remain is the argument. Um, Neither can I necessarily fully embrace, I, I mean, as much as I would like to, and I've, I'm, you know, I, 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 I actually am very, um, Lee's argument does really appeal to me in many respects. Um, but as, as we've said, sovereignty is complex. Uh, one alternative, and I am a member of DM 25 and I, and yes. I've, the, the, the Varifak, <laughs> you've heard that, right? Lee called me out on that. Um, uh, you know, but even that is somewhat, one would have to say, sounds a little naive, you know, the idea of building a, a European demos to take the fight, to remain in rebel. It doesn't, you know, the history of that or the current, the current status of that seems like a long road, right? Yes. And, and, and when you, so when you take it back to where we are with Brexit now, um, I, I confess, I, I don't feel I have, I don't feel terribly confident at all that I would know the answer. What I do think is that a second referendum is a bad idea, but maybe you disagree. Well, I think maybe sort of dialing that back uh, yeah. and also making a uh, common cause with Lee here. If the issue is, and I, I think it is, if the issue is uh, democracy and dealing yes. with a broad democratic deficit, and if we can agree on that, and if the issue is about not just democratizing political institutions and political processes, but also economic ones, then if we can get agreement on that, and I think we largely can on yes. the left, uh, then the question really becomes, okay, now, from what we know, um, what's the best way to achieve it? Now, uh, I hope I'm not kind of um, misrepresenting Lee, but my, my sense is for him, what he says is, well, we need to go, we need to um, go back uh, to, uh, to the nation states. Uh, we need to base it on the sovereign people. Uh, what I would argue from my from where I come from, looking at uh, the issue from from a different angle, mm -hmm. is that in fact what we need to do is follow the power. 
So rather than going back to where mm. democracy worked in the past, because we can't go back to the past because the world has changed so dramatically, we need yeah. to follow the power and democratize it. So I don't have any easy answers to that, but what it does mean is that I find myself leaning clo closer to Varoufakis than I do to Lee. And how do you feel about that? I mean, are you a Yanis fan? I mean, is that something that shocks you or surprises you? Or, or I, I've never asked you about Yanis Varoufakis before, so I don't know where you stand there. Yeah, well, I mean, I have I have disagreements with uh, with things that he said, but uh, yeah. I suspect his instincts. I've already read a few of his uh, his books, but uh, he I, says uh, the same thing over and over again, so it doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah he probably does. Yeah, <laughs> I, have a, I have a certain sympathy for him, but yeah. I think though, uh, Lee looked at it from his perspective yes. and, and sees him as a fantasist. Yes, he did, he used actually, I think even did that term. He did use that term, yes. But I think uh, actually that depends on where you're standing. Uh, and again, say standing from the position of my scholarship and my expertise mm -hmm. rather than standing from the position of Lee's scholarship and his expertise. Varoufakis actually looks a lot more pragmatic. Uh, he is actually trying to deal with the issue of following the power yeah. and democratizing democratizing uh, places that are becoming more powerful uh, and where, of course, neoliberalism has beaten us to it, where neoliberalism has already got, got to. Yeah. And to therefore see the EU uh, and, and, the, and European integration uh, as one of many um, levels uh, of this sort of conflict about democratization. And, and I think it's important that we realize it's not the only level, that there's a, there's a lot going on here. I mean, yeah. it also includes issues. There's lots of fronts on this. Uh, I would include, for example, the, the problems with global finance, uh, the issues of offshore accounts, um, a whole series of things that are going on uh, uh, here. Uh, uh, but I think that retreating uh, to um, the safety of the nation state um, actually is um, is actually the, the wrong move, even yeah. if it's done for, for very good democratic progressive reasons. I think actually in the end, it will actually defeat the left rather than uh, 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 help it. Well, you know, um, I, 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 I think I can remember listening to something before where uh, sort of Yanis Varoufakis were, was talking about his uh, kind of worst nightmares outcome scenario of uh, not just Brexit, but it should Brexit lead to other exits or uh, an, an implosion of the European Union as a project overall, that what you would yes. tend, what you would probably yes. see emerging in its wake would be because of the deep integration of the German economy with its immediate hinterland, the countries around it are so kind of going back to what we were saying on about Northern Irish milk, you know, that there's, there's such um, a, an interconnectivity of production between the German economy and its neighbors at this stage that they're kind of fundamentally the same sort of production regime that, uh, you know, it, it, all, it makes complete sense for them to remain integrated in some kind of currency union. Uh, you know, then the question would be what happens politically to, to the other countries that that German, you know, on its own, that German regime could, you know, politically drift in, in some directions that we just simply don't want to see it going. That the important thing is to try to keep it embedded in this wider European Union framework where there's a way to prevent the kind of dual tier economic um, that, that the lesser developed periphery would you know, just simply 
um, fall behind economically. I think that's a good point. And the, I added to that is, you know, as much as we can uh, criticize the European Union for its democratic deficit, there's uh, a particular kind of arrangement that has an even larger democratic deficit. And that's where you have a single hegemon. Yeah, uh, dominating uh, uh, small small countries, and in some respects, you know, living in Canada, I I experienced this in terms mm -hmm. of relationship with the United States. Uh, and if you if you live in Mexico or the Caribbean, uh, you you are a rule taker, uh, and yes. you have no chance to put, have any kind of input. And you know, even if we can. Even if we're deeply critical of the democratic deficit in the yeah. European Union, at least there is some kind of control that countries like Ireland can have some control. And I think linked to that as well, talking about sort of Varoufakis's uh, nightmare, yes. is the issue of what happens if you do reimpose these borders. And it's not victimless. I mean, we've already seen that with our discussion of the Irish border, that mm -hmm. it's going to affect people's lives. When you reintroduce these borders, uh, various kind, various diasporas, uh, example with Brexit is British people living uh, in uh, the European Union and European EU 27 people living in Britain, uh, they go through um, a hell of a lot of angst. Some of them um, find lose their livelihoods. And we've already seen with the British government's handling of uh, the Windrush scandal, that yes, they're actually yes. very good at handling this sort of issue. So you begin to bring up a list of people who uh, will suffer quite dramatically by the re-establishment of, of borders. Borders are not uh, kind of pleasant, soft, neutral things. They, uh, yeah. they do do violence to, uh, to a landscape. And, and you uh -huh. and I have seen that and yeah. seen that being yeah. erased now in the case of uh, the border between Ireland and Northern Ireland and how uh, the, the scar was, has, been, has kind of been healed. Um, right. So I think we must remember that, uh, uh, that this kind of retreat to the state is, is not without victims. Indeed. Well said. Maybe uh, we can just talk briefly now about, and I'm going to put you on the spot, so I hope this doesn't make you uncomfortable, <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, wh where do you stand on the what is to be done question uh, now? Like today is, is what, February 16th? You know, not much left to go here. A lot of people in our sphere uh, believe there should be a second referendum. I was reading a wonderful blog post by Leah Yippie on the LSE uh, blog. Um, you know, she's someone I follow from time to time. Great scholar. Uh, now, she is saying that uh, Labour, the Labour Party, um, should kind of um, throw a little caution to the wind here. Um, forget what the polls say. Don't worry as being perceived as a centrist elite. And on the basis of an idea that uh, you don't kind of, you go to war with the army you have, not the army you wish for. Uh, in other words, in her words, a strategic pragmatic uh, program, call and work e even against the odds for a, a second referendum. Um, and she also says that Labour's honor bound to do that because that was contained, that promise, that commitment was contained in the conference uh, composite motion. 
Uh, now, as I read the conference composite motion, yes. it said that plus all options on the table. So I'm not sure. I'm not sure I read that Labour was fully committed in that. Obviously, a bit of a fudge yes. there. We can agree to disagree, perhaps. But um, leaving that kind of question of what Labour committed to or not, what I don't see the parliamentary parliamentary mathematics there for it, frankly. Um, but uh, maybe there is a, a sort of a, a duty to advance a, a second referendum. Well, yeah, maybe again, I, I, I'll come to that, but maybe I'll start just by dialing it back as well to, to the first referendum, because I think uh, this, the first referendum um, it, uh, affects in some ways how we, how we see the second. Uh, I the first thing that comes out of this, particularly from you and I having long experiences in Ireland, uh, is um, that uh, the British aren't good with referenda. Because <laughs> uh, uh, you know when uh, when referendum when a referendum happens in Ireland, uh, there's uh, uh, the legislation is waiting there. If there needs to be a change, uh, the question is very carefully put. So you know exactly what the answer is. It's it's uh, and there's a lot of um, participation uh, before the referendum. And uh, a lot of problems with the first referendum. First of all, it was a very poor question. I think it really was designed just to have a remain answer because what does leave mean? Uh, so there's. So it was a poor question to begin with. Uh, the second thing about it was there was no legislation waiting to go. Uh, so you're immediately left with what the hell do you do the next day with a leave? And in many respects, there was a need, I think, to actually run a second referendum directly after the first to actually ask specifically what leave meant. Uh, so a second referendum immediately to say, by leave, we meant blah, blah, blah. Um, and, and that didn't happen. That doesn't fit very well with the idea of a, the, the sort of spiritual idea of a referendum, though, does it? Like, you no. know, like, you know, OK, now that you've said it, what do you mean? Like, well, it's, what did you mean by the question? Yeah, I know it's, it's getting a little bit close to the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Uh, we know the answer is 42, but now we need to uh, now what's the question, the question yeah. was. And in some respects, it's what we yeah. needed to find out. The other thing is, is of course, that also it was very close and in many countries that have a very close referendum what they tend to do is it, that requires compromise with both sides and of course in many respects talking about how this is dependent what we do now is dependent on what we did in the past is that there were several very jejeune mistakes that were made uh, uh, right at the beginning over the over the first referendum um, huh. and uh, I say, hey, I think one of the big ones was uh, you really needed to find out what leave meant uh, right away. Um, yeah. So that said, and, it's, and, and again, the other issue, of course, was it was very close. So really, um, there needed to be a kind of a period of um, of compromise between the two sides. Okay, we're leaving, but there's also a very strong Remain vote. Uh, so yeah. we're going to have to. Neither side can have everything they want in this sense, and that wasn't done. So now we're kind of left like some kind of like striking a constitutional convention or, or whatever the British parallel to that might have been would not have been a bad idea, right? Like a put your finger on the pulse of the nation and actually figure out what yeah. you know 
you know, you know, the, the nuts and bolts yeah, of the thing. It, it never really was done. Countries that aren't used to referendum, referenda have a, has a referendum. So, I mean, that really, I think, makes it very problematic now in terms of of, uh, of where to go now, because in some respects, whatever you do is going to be bad. Uh, yeah. I, uh, yeah. If if you don't Brexit. Um, um, it's going to be bad. Uh, if you have a no-deal Brexit, it's going to be bad. Uh, if you have Theresa May deal, it's going to be bad. And I think also the issue of with uh, the second referendum, in, in some respects, there's a certain logic to it. You're saying, well, um, mm-hmm. the first referendum um, didn't actually uh, give a clear path to what the government should do. Uh, so in some respects, uh, there was lots of expectations about what leave meant, but those expectations could never be met. So there's this kind of impossible expectations uh, that yeah. comes out of this. So in one respect, it's it's um, it's I can see the attraction to saying, well, let's let's have another vote and find out what people really meant. Um, but of course, mm-hmm. there's costs to that as well, and I think that will that will right. cause a lot of anger. Um, but on the same time, uh, there's costs to everything on here. Um, yeah, so yeah. there is a possibility again. I agree really with you. It depends on the path taken. If the path is taken so that the option can be used as a kind of excuse to buy time, that it's presented in the right way, that it follows on from a series of other events, uh, a second referendum could work. But at the same time, it could go in another direction and be a kind of a disaster. Uh, so, And also, there's even if uh, the referendum goes ahead, there's still a good chance Leave will win. And so, and that's worse, yeah. right? I mean, I mean, let's be honest. Even our, our, if Remain won, but only by a, uh, a, a smidgen, smidgen. And what does that mean? That is dreadful. Absolutely. And I think that could be a very likely outcome. And I, I think that would be yeah. really oh. awful for Britain. There's another option. What happens if, I know, I think Lee was mentioning as well, the, the different possibilities you could go for. If you went for a sort of single transferable vote and the very unpopular withdrawal uh-huh. agreement was up there, well, there's a good chance that the yeah. withdrawal agreement would get the transfers. <laughs> so you'd, you'd, so you'd, you'd have, have a, a three transfer. In the <laughs> three options. Uh, as an option. Yeah. Uh, but withdrawal coming through because there were enough no dealers and enough remainers willing to hold their nose and put uh, withdrawal agreement second. So. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so I mean, I'm I, agnostic. I, I know what you're doing there, Lee. Uh, Lee, I just called you, uh, okay. Luke. Is uh, <laughs> is you're dodging my question? I'm your question. Where would I? <laughs> yeah, this but is I, not my first rodeo. I've been hosting this show for two years. <laughs> no, I, I am dodging the question, but part of it is because, again, I, I think that uh, policymakers have found themselves. Uh, increasingly, and partially they've done this themselves, Uh, they kind of fence themselves in. Uh, They fail to manage expectations in terms about what they could deliver. Um, They fail to really properly um, uh, articulate uh, what the EU would be uh, be willing to offer. Um, and you know, there, are, yeah. there are serious red lines in the EU that, in many respects, I think what uh, uh, many people assumed that leave would mean uh, was always a pipe dream because uh, the uh, the EU 27 would never agree to them. So 
in that sense, oh, okay, where does that leave us? Where, where does that leave us, Nick? <laughs> yeah. well, well, I tell you, I have, um, we're, we'll probably move to start wrapping up in a little bit, but, um, you know, I was listening to, uh, uh, well, if you're Irish listening to this, you know who I'm talking about, Eamon Dunphy. Yes. Um, he has a podcast, mostly sports oriented, admittedly, and I skip over those episodes, but uh, once or twice a week, he does a political episode and he's been uh, interviewing sort of a, a number of uh, Brexit oriented people uh, lately. <clears throat> and uh, I think one thing he's sort of predicting, and I'm tempted to say, yeah, I think this is, you know, if, if I'm asked right now to put my money down, I'm, I'm thinking uh, a very late stage deal where Theresa May's deal or something very close to it passes and the EU accepts it for lack of another option at that stage. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that does introduce then the ramifications we've been discussing earlier on for the Northern Irish border. Um, and, and this is where I kind of get into maybe some trouble with, um, my well-meaning, uh, Facebook friends and whatnot. But, um, you know, I think Corbyn sees that too. And there has been a sense, I think just, just sort of reading between the lines, various statements, various positions, uh, uh hints coming out of the Corbyn camp the last couple of weeks, especially that basically they're at a point where it's kind of washed the hands and really, um, this thing, this thing just needs to be put to bed. So, um, Corbyn, you know, coming from that Tony Ben kind of background, that school, that internationalist position, I think he's, um, versed. He's, um, he's got the language. Uh, he, he's got the intellectual horizon to kind of understand a Britain that is outside the European Union in a sense. What do you make, what would you think of an argument where ostensibly, you know, a flag is raised and the left is asked to rally to that kind of a position, you know, just like kind of, look, this thing is just going to drag on and on really at the end of the day, the, 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 the mission at this stage, whether we're in or out of Europe, you know, uh, Britain is not going to become a socialist utopia overnight. Um, that's going to be a slow patient, a bit of work and, uh, you, you know, that needs to start now. Right. right. So, so in or out that the thing should be just move on, get this thing in the past, and, and, and start building that. It's the kind of uh, argument yeah, um, <clears throat> a number of people have made. They put it to bed. It's a distraction. We need to yeah. be getting back to fighting austerity. Yeah, we need to be getting mm -hmm. back to uh, uh, fighting for a Labour government or, or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and as a footnote to this, I mean, a mutual friend of ours, uh, someone who's been on this show before, Owen mm -hmm. Worth, um, you know, has, I think, I'm not sure I agree with him on this, but he, he be would believe, uh, that, you know, that, that Benite, um, leftist, uh, momentum for exit, just, it's, it's just not there. The movement for it's not no. there. The, 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 the base isn't primed for it no. to the extent that labor party members support exit. It's not really a Benite exit. It's no. a, it's, it's something much more along the lines of maybe what, what Lee or others would argue for, even if that, uh, I mean, to, to give it its due. So, um, I don't know. Yeah, Cause Ben was talking about a, a kind of an alternative to, Mm -hmm. um, the, mm -hmm. then the EEC, uh, a kind of a, yeah. a socialist, 
version of that, a social democratic version of that. And that's right. not the case here. I mean, yes, as you say, there's a internationalist bent to Ben. Um, uh, on that, I, yeah, I think I can see, I can see the appeal of that. I mean, we are probably looking at some kind of fudge down the road, but, but whatever happens in some respects, the realities of Britain's proximity to the EU 27, the realities of, of Britain's economy, of its trade, uh, of its links, politically, economically, culturally, is going to mean that if uh, Britain leaves, whether it's a managed no deal, uh, a chaotic no deal, or some kind of uh, a, a May deal, is we're still going to be looking at a situation in which uh, Britain is actually going to uh, um, be a rule taker. Uh, and in that respect, mm. uh, the whether it's what people voted for or not, uh, the reality is likely to be uh, Britain having, to put it in Boris Johnson's uh, terms, having a vassal status. It's going to yeah. be uh, taking rules that it that, that it uh, um, that it hasn't yeah. made, yeah. uh, that it hasn't uh, been part of the political process uh, to make uh, um, making. So in that sense, uh, it, it's a it's a Canada, it's a Canada plus in this, but in the sense of Canada's <laughs> relationship with the United States. Uh, so. Uh, so, I mean, that's going to be a reality. And, of course, that is also going to um, have an effect in terms of uh, what a uh, left-wing government in Britain is able to do. Does mm -hmm. it will be able to obviously manage its own internal affairs, but there will be limits to what it can do uh, in, in Europe as a whole. And there is actually, in some respects, again, going to a sort of a, 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 the Varoufakis side of the house, is there's something mm -hmm. in... Um, having uh, some kind of control on the levers uh, with, uh, Europe wide um, in the various institutions that exist uh, uh, within Europe uh, um, and being able to influence those. And actually, this is where I would disagree with Lee. I mean, Lee's argument is that it's going to take too long, that you're going to need to have to have two thirds of the country's uh, social democrat and right. so forth. Well, two things on that. First of all, the uh, the neoliberals did a damn good job of taking over in a very short space of time because you did not they begin did. as a neoliberal institution. Second yeah. thing is, it's amazing what a small group of intransigent countries can do in the. <laughs> and the best yeah. example we have this, of course, is the far right. How Hungary and yes. Poland between the two of them have managed to get away uh -huh. with murder in terms yeah. of, well, not yeah. literally murder, obviously, but they've been well, able to get away with, uh, with, with a, a lot of rule breaking uh, just yes. by basically watching each other's back. And there's been very little uh -huh. the EU can do about it. And I think uh, um, uh, it's uh, underestimated they, what, uh, what power um, even sort of two rather kind of moderately sized and small economies can do. Uh, then imagine what uh, uh, what larger countries like Britain or France can do within within those structures. So I I think uh, I think he's written it off a little bit too early. And I think Hungary and, mm -hmm. and Poland uh, from the the far right side uh, actually shows us what can be done. Right. That's a really in insightful point. Um, I take some encouragement from that because I think that would be at the end of the day. You know, if if I could sort of go back in time, uh, that would that would be my position. You know that yeah. that that's the that that is the way forward. I've never 
fully bought um, the article of faith uh, by many of the left that the EU is somehow intrinsically unreformable. I, I don't know why, but it just doesn't. And maybe it's a, a, a defect of my sort of socialization when I was younger. When I, <laughs> you know, I was very much involved in the European Union and, and very much interested in the European Union as, as, as uh, when I was younger. Uh, but um, I just can't quite buy into the idea that there's no way to reform the EU. It just seems, um, I, I may, maybe there's some kind of like federalist lurking in my heart or something, but I, I, um, well, I think it's, you know, it's, it, it makes sense in the sense that, uh, if you're talking about unreformable, uh, probably mm. the, the much older, uh, UK state, much older, much deeper, much larger UK state would actually be a, a better uh, 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 candidate for unreformable in the yes. sense. That I mean, precisely. This is the entire. This is the entire raison d'etre of the. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it, 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 it's 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 not for nothing that we had the debates of the second international, and we're we're already on the left quite familiar with the idea that that it's difficult to reform power. Yes. No, you know, since when did we shy away from that absolutely. fight? I mean, it's it's yes. it's. Um, you know, to, to come back to it now and and reading this through people like Andre Gorse and and mm. others, you have obviously a, a difficulty with reform. Reform has never necessarily been the, the true path. Um, maybe the, the, the idea of the non-reforming non -reforming reform comes into play here. You know, the, the, um, that, it, that it's not, you don't just simply make a demand that is, um, you know, is going to uh, somehow all too easily fold into the desires and interests of the elite. You know, you make a demand that disrupts, slows, yes gives pause to makes capital's agenda more expensive for it opens up spaces of freedom um you know you you do it tactically uh you 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 do it um in the sense of a long march through the institutions um and uh i, I just you know I, I i don't i don't remember when we got the memo that this stuff was ever going to be easy whether you oh. did it at the state level or the at the at the at the european union level so you know the eu is unreformable well show me something that is well, well exactly i mean you, you look at what's going on in the united states at the moment and in some respects the us system is uh, is in many respects uh, uh, very kind of resistant to to reform uh, in in many respects, except from the other from direction. direction. <laughs> but uh, at the same time, though, uh, uh, you know there are still victories, and you know, we've seen what's happened with the new intake in the House. That in a very short space yes, of time, of they've kind of shifted the debate. Uh, yeah, with, yeah, with a very right. uh, with with a very small power base uh, and tangible impact tangible on the impact. already the way the debate for twenty twenty is being framed. Absolutely, yeah. So I I, I would agree with you. Though. I think it's uh, I don't think we need to uh, we don't need to surrender before we've even started the battle. <laughs> Yeah. So, so Luke, our, I, I think as, as a takeaway message here, uh, you're not, um, you, you would not, uh, chide me, uh, as our friend Lee did, uh, for, for my DM 25 so, membership. I can, I don't have to, I don't have to cash in my membership card anytime soon. No, no. In fact, I'd say, use it, use it as a platform. <laughs> good. I'm trying. <laughs> Very good. And it, and it really opens up looking at the issue of Brexit opens up quite a number of very important conversations that we need to be having on the left. Mm -hmm. So it's very valuable. 
And I think what's great about uh, your podcast is that uh, it allows us to do that in a, in a collegial way. Oh, I hope so. I hope so. It'd be nice. Yeah, I, I try. Every, everyone's view is welcome here. I, I, exactly. I hope uh, I, hope I uh, might keep myself and my own politics out of the way enough. I mean, I'm, I'm definitely not going to not tell you what I think. <laughs> but um, yeah, I do. I do want to get that diversity in there. All right. So anyway, listen, we're still recording. Uh, just wanted to ask you, is there anything like I need, I need to ask you that I haven't asked you? Uh, maybe about the history of the left, because in Britain, because oh. Lee mentioned that as well. Yeah. But I have a kind of slightly different take on the history of the left and its relationship with internationalism and the European project. It's not completely different from his, but it, it goes back earlier, because I think there's um, Lee kind of jumps in in the middle of the story <laughs> that uh, is quite important in terms of the uh, history of. Um, the Labour Party in Britain and its relationship with internationalism and with the European Union is that it's complicated. And that in fact, what we see is certainly in the early 20th century, they're actually very anti-nationalist, internationalist, uh, but also you've got uh, forms of the left like guild socialism that are actually very suspicious of the state. Uh, and of course, this is people like Harold Lasky, uh, it's people like G.D.H. Cole. So it's big names on the left. Yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, what's actually the, the weird abnormal bubble is the period from um, the Second World War uh, up until the uh, up until the 70s, which is the period, of course, that, that, that Lee was talking about, uh, where there is this kind of resistance to uh, more internationalist forms of labor. There's a resistance to European integration. But much of that is linked to a kind of uh, a, a pragmatic, we're in power nationally. So this is where we should, this is where we should concentrate. But it's not necessarily the soul of labor uh, to, and, and the left in Britain to be, to be anti-European and anti-internationalist. Right. What is so very common in the Labour Party and the British left in general is that they are deeply enthusiastic for international experiments. Mm -hmm. When uh, the actual real existing experiment appears, half of the people are uh, angry that it hasn't achieved everything they want to. And a good example uh -huh. is the League of Nations. Uh, so the left is is strongly behind the League of Nations. Then the Covenant comes out and half of them walk away and say, uh, this is ridiculous. Uh, the League's awful. It's been taken over by capitalists. And so they hate it. Yeah. Uh, so there is this kind of tendency uh, in, the, in the British left to, to pump, put an enormous amount of um, uh, a hope into an, an organization and then to get very disillusioned. Uh, with Too quickly. Very, very quickly. So, uh, so we need staying power. We need to be in for the long fight. It's, uh, you know, in, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's a, you think of a rugby scrum metaphor, you know, it's, 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 no, it's, it's not easy. You're going to have to fight for it. Yeah. And yeah. it's going to do, it's going to do all sorts of damage to your neck at some point. Yeah. Uh, it, yeah. Yeah. You, you might get a couple of spinal injuries on the way. <laughs> yeah, for sure. All <laughs> right. <laughs> Um, yeah. so, so moving that lesson forward then and talking about the tensions on the left, the question of Brexit, its historical relationship to, 
um, left um, d- defeatism, perhaps, but also maybe even a, a left-wing strain of nationalism. I mean, that, that's that's there too, right? I mean, we it couldn't is. disavow. Well, <laughs> we should disavow, but we couldn't deny. I meant to say uh, the, uh, the the the, the fact that there has been uh, in Britain, especially a, a sort of um, a, a, a historically a, a regressive strain. Do you do you want? Can you talk a little bit about that? Or yeah, absolutely. Well. I think much of that actually originates in the Second World War and after, and uh, mm-hmm. a lot of it is linked to uh, the uh, Labour getting into power. Yeah. So uh, if you actually if you read a lot of uh, Labour politicians and Labour writers uh, in the twenties and thirties, say, which was of course the subject of one of my books, yeah. is that uh, nationalism is seen very much as something of the right. Mm-hmm. And it's the conservatives who sing land and for hope and glory, and it's the conservatives. And that's also linked to their opposition to empire quite often as well. Uh, not all people on the left in the Labour Party were opposed to empire, uh, but uh, those who were were also anti-nationalist at the same time. But there is uh, a um, there's also almost like sort of a Faustian pact by the British left, starting in the Second World War, because of course Labour goes into coalition with Winston Churchill, and actually uh, they work very well with Churchill, Attlee works very well with him. And the period of the war and fighting fascism kind of made it respectable to be um, mm. British nationalist and also a socialist. And we see this, of course, most famously in George Orwell's um, superb essay, The Lion and the Unicorn, which is mm-hmm. simultaneously internationalist and socialist, but at the same time also a kind of a hymn of praise uh, to Englishness. And why you know there's on all the the positive things in Englishness, which are the opposite of of fascism, uh, and I think a lot of that then feeds into to the Labour Party. So a lot of what people think of as a kind of a traditional Labour Party position is actually something that uh, is really a product of the 1940s and 1950s. So it's actually quite a late uh, addition uh, to Labour thinking, and that also led to a, a suspicion of, um, of European integration as well. And again, Labour then rediscovering the empire via the Commonwealth mm. and in terms of, uh, you know, having been anti-imperialist, suddenly rediscovering the empire as, uh, as something that uh, could be turned into the Commonwealth uh, uh, and uh, would be a, a better vehicle for socialism. And I think that's where Ben comes from. Ben comes from that, came from that generation um, uh, during the 1940s that uh, uh, became Converts to British nationalism for very pragmatic reasons. That yeah. uh, was that the capture of the British states by a socialist party was possible, yeah. uh, and you could create a utopia um, uh, from the top down. That, the, that Britain was a shell state that could be taken over and uh, converted into uh, uh, into a into a better society, a new Jerusalem. Right, and and this even gets expressed in kind of works by Ralph Milban, people like this as well. I mean. Yes. Yeah, that's that generation of people. Yeah. Of course, both Miliband and Ben are, of course, part of that uh, wartime generation as well. But somehow, imaginatively today, I don't think we... I'm just perplexed how our imagination today doesn't allow us to sort of think about that getting replicated at a European level. Yeah. It's, it's, um, it seems to be stuck ontologically at the level of a very 19th century notion of the state, even despite its own best efforts to not be, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. And I know what you mean. And, and again, I think maybe it's because the changes over the last 150 years have been so rapid that in some respects, our, our ideological outlook really has problems keeping up. 
uh, and I think that's a, a major problem that we face, that we, we're still thinking in terms of uh, a kind of a conflict between the night watchman state and the welfare state. Mm. Politics mm. has really moved, uh, uh, well, the political economy uh, has uh, moved well beyond uh, that being a, a, a particularly useful uh, um, conflict and dichotomy to, to think about uh, uh, politics. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I'd, I'd I'd agree. I think in some respects, in that sense, uh, you know, we laugh at uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg for being sort of stuck in the 19th century, but the extent to which, in, in some respects, uh, we are too still stuck yeah. in the 19th yeah. century, uh, just that we don't dress like it and speak like it. Well, we're just I, as much prisoners of uh, as he is of, of, of a, a long dead world. Well, on that merry note, uh, I think that's probably a, a fine point to end it, uh, Luke. Uh, so thanks very much for joining us today. This was a real treat uh, for me, especially. And uh, I hope the listeners have enjoyed it. If anyone has any feedback or questions uh, for us, uh, again, uh, I, I'm going to beg uh, or cajole Luke to come back on in a month or so. So if anyone has any uh, issues they'd like to sort of have addressed over the next uh, month or so, they can uh, reach out to us on Twitter. Uh, 